cutting-edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello, and welcome to the first podcast of the cutting edge section of Risk.net. I'm Mauro Cesar, Quant Finance Editor of Risk, and here with me is my colleague Nazneen Sharif, Associate Quant Finance Editor and Senior Staff Writer. Hi, everyone. This is the first of a series, as uh, we will be regularly publishing podcasts in which we will talk to the authors of the papers and hear from them on their findings. Our guest today is Professor Damiano Brigo. Thank you very much for joining us, Damiano. It's a pleasure. Hello, everyone. Damiano is Chair of Mathematical Finance and Stochastic Analysis at the Maths Department of Imperial College London. Over the years, he has held several senior positions in the academia as well as in the industry and, uh, and has been a very prolific and influential author. And just to prove this last point, a statistic we published last December shows that Damiano is the author who has been cited the most in risk in the past 10 years. So well done on that achievement. Before we crack on, with the interview. I'm very pleased to announce that Miano will be Risk's columnist for the next few months. His column will appear in the Catanet section of the website and in print. Uh, Damiano in them will offer uh, his views on uh, the industry and the open questions uh, in quant finance. We'll come back to this later with some details. Now we'd like to ask you, Damiano, a few questions on the present and the future of the industry. At the light of the direction quant finance is, is taking, uh, with the rise of fintech companies and the use of new tools uh, such as machine learning, what is the role of mathematicians? In what areas of finance is math still indispensable? Uh, yeah, this is an excellent question. Uh, and I would really start answering it by looking at uh, machine learning and fintech, possibly. The term is, is uh, quite generic, but I think uh, uh, in, in terms of machine learning, you know, uh, there are many applications that uh, really work like a black box. Uh, you see that they are effective, but you really don't know why. And I think uh, it would be important for mathematicians uh, to start uh, uh, studying more. This has been done clearly, but we need more work like that to study why a machine learning algorithm works, uh, you know, when it uh, produces uh, uh, a good output compared to, to a bad output, understanding when the algorithms uh, uh, converge, uh, under which conditions, uh, and uh, getting some, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, rigorous results uh, on the way the, the machine learning applications work uh, that allow us to go a little bit beyond the black box aspect that sometimes is, you know, uh, a little bit limiting. I think this is important. And generally, related to fintech, of course, we have uh, we have now the these areas are a little bit under hype. We have uh, clearly big data as being a big, uh, um, you know, resounding area for for many years now. Uh, but actually, there are some substance. There is some substance behind these uh, these areas. For example, big data, you know, data sets that the investment firms collect, both on their customers, on the market, on the information, and so on, are so big and so vast that human inspection is, uh, is impossible. Even the mere fault of putting part of this data on Excel doesn't, doesn't make any sense often. So if you want to understand the data, you really need to apply some metrics uh, uh, that extract uh, the amount of information or tell you where the actual information is is in a huge data set where the interesting information is for what you want to do. 
And designing these metrics using information theory and, and similar techniques uh, is a very, very mathematical problem that is at the heart of what many hedge funds and buy side firms try to do. So studying more the mathematical aspect of the and of the metrics that one applies to these big data sets, I think it's a very, very interesting, uh, you know, uh, mathematical problem. And finally, I would mention optimization because optimization is uh, one of the tasks that has always been there in, in quantitative finance. When you calibrate a model, very often what you're doing is simply solving an optimization problem. But optimization should be used uh, much more proactively. Uh, for example, let's take risk management. Uh, and this, you know, this is very important. Risk ma ma management in the industry is often actually risk measurement. There is very little active uh, management that is done, uh, I would say, scientifically. The management, of course, the risk managers do manage risk, but they do it uh, in a way that is not, uh, you know, uh, always uh, uh, very rigorous. If we could apply uh, rigorous optimization techniques to optimize the risk of a bank, uh, you know, the, to optimize the use of capital rather than the, the way based on clearly experience and expertise, but that is a little bit more in a way an edoctal, you know, that, that is done now. I think this would have a huge added value and um, more generally uh, optimization has a, a variety of applications in the industry that I think uh, mathematicians could really look at. So uh, there's a lot of mathematics implicit uh, and, and a lot of mathematical challenges in these areas of uh, fintech and machine learning. And I think uh, uh, this, this will keep the mathematicians busy for quite some time. So you um, spoke of uh, optimization and uh, machine learning, and it seems like quants on the buy side have more freedom. Se they seem to have more freedom now for, uh, to research these things. So the question then would be, is quantitative finance a dying subject on the sell side? I think some areas of quantitative finance are losing interest for sure. For example, pricing and edging of exotics has seen a diminished interest due also to regulation that does not favor such products and the decreased market demand. Exotics have pretty much, uh, you know, disappeared to a large extent, except for what is embedded in XVA, if you like. Uh, but the, the other application I mentioned earlier, risk management, I think that's pretty core, you know, a pretty core uh, aspect of the sell side and you want to optimize the way you, you, you have to, you know, set aside your capital, the, the way you are distributed across asset classes, the way you use the, the, the risk limits of your bank and so on. And this is, again, optimization. And even if it's op optimization is a technique that we typically associate more with portfolio optimization, you know, with data sets and so on, uh, like in the, in the buy side, I think that the risk management in this spirit is very much also a sell side endeavor and, and would benefit uh, from uh, optimization, for more optimization. I think this is, you know, clearly an important example. There are others. Every time, as I said, you calibrate a model, you're running an optimization problem. Now, if XVA goes on being a relevant problem on big netting sets and so on, you may want to have a consistent calibration of all the models that are involved in the portfolio where you're trying to do a precise valuation and edge uh, of the related uh, you know, quantities. And in this sense, again, optimization could be helpful in 
massive model calibration in, in multivariate model calibration that was unthinkable up to a few years ago to due to limited computing power essentially you know so i think there's a, there's still uh, interest in the cell side in a number of areas but the, Clearly, you're right, the core, you know, activity of the cell side for many years where the mathematicians were most active was pricing and edging of exotics. And this is definitely losing interest. But there are other things where, where we can use mathematics, as, as I said, yeah. And um, we'd like to hear a view on uh, artificial intelligence. And uh, in general, well, if what we are witnessing now is uh, can be defined artificial intelligence, and if so, or to what extent this has having an impact in the industry? Actually, I think that uh, if we mean by artificial in intelligence human level thinking with the understanding of context uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, almost human understanding, we're very, very far away from that. Uh, and this is a view that is shared by even you know some historical pioneers of of artificial intelligence like uh, of stutter he, he claimed in an interview a couple of years ago that uh, all these uh, 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 voice uh, applications and even the, the games the the programs that can win games or answer some quiz questions successfully these do not really contain any real intelligence they are very good you know uh, machine learning or statistical algorithms that are based on uh, uh, you know training understand what they are expected to to do in order to win or to reproduce a, a sensible conversation but they don't really understand what they're doing there's no understanding or and we are very much uh, away i think from understanding consciousness there's no no despite what some philosophers say but I, I don't think we have a satisfactory theory of consciousness at the moment so we're very very far away from human level intelligence but in some specific tasks the machine have been able to beat humans like in the game of go famously uh, where there was a relatively general machine learning algorithm in chess historically with an ex more of an expert system so there are specific tasks where the machine can already beat humans but the general intelligence uh, with broad context that we have is, is still very very far away I would say, and uh, I don't think it's there. Now, if this happens, if we get there, then we will have a completely different set of problems than, you know, uh, what happens to the quants or, or, or to maths. Because if machines become uh, uh, exceeding the human level, real intelligence, then, uh, you know, you have scenarios where we start talking science fiction. You know, some uh, famous people uh, warned against the dangers of well, Stephen Hawking, for example, of art real artificial intelligence. The machines, I mean, this looks like, a, again, a movie, but the machines could take over and decide that we humans are dangerous for, for the planet. And while being benevolent, they could decide, you know, to put some limitations to what we can do and so on. Yeah, we are very far away from this, and, and I think it, we shouldn't discuss it too much right now. But to say that real artificial intelligence would be a game changer, and the consequences would go well beyond, uh, you know, the, the job quants, it would be really a revolution for humanity as a whole. Not the danger just for mathematicians, then. No, <laughs> no risk just for them. Yeah. But still possibly dangerous if uh, used in financial institutions that handle people's money, possibly, oh, yes. even if there's no artificial intelligence there, really. 
At the moment, yeah. there yeah. is statistics, I think. A lot yeah. of machine learning and statistics, uh, they talk about, uh, I wrote an article on robotic process automation. Yeah. So that's something else, really. Yeah. Uh, if you look at uh, these ideas on, uh, you know, intelligent, uh, between quotes, uh, robo-advisor for, for example, brokers. You, you call yeah. your insurance company because you want a policy, I don't know, in your house, new house, yeah. and you get a robot answering it that based on your previous purchases, your bank account data and details, uh, tries to statistically estimate based on what people people similar to you did, tries to statistically estimate what's the product for you. And then you can ask him, uh, I would like something more oriented to, you know, theft protection, and then he can personalize it to some extent. But again, there wouldn't be understanding. This would be function interpolation, statistical algorithms, uh, you know, there wouldn't be really any understanding in the robot. So it depends. And there's this, going back to the previous question, maybe this very nice video where you have this robot and it's really, the, 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 the robot has been built, it has a face, it's amazing. It's a young woman who answers question. And at some point the, the questioner asks, would you, uh, something like, I'm paraphrasing here, but would you exterminate the human race? And, uh, and uh, clearly the robot does not understand the question. He looks at its algorithms and then he's instructed, probably, I don't know, I'm guessing here. When you get a question you don't fully understand, gain time. Say, oh, this is something, you know, I could consider, you know. Okay. And then he, she answers, the robot answers along these lines, like, oh, well, yeah, I could exterminate the human race. But <laughs> if, you, if someone asks you, would, do you think you would like... Uh, a type of, uh, you know, um, asparagus uh, uh, soup and you have never tried it and you say, well, yeah, I could, I could try an asparagus soup. But if they ask you whether you would like to exterminate the human race, you know, that's not exactly the same type of question. So you see that the context is missing here. There's no understanding, really. There's just statistics and, and, and uh, algorithms. So um, moving on to maybe um, slightly um, less entertaining topic, um, <laughs> regulation. So um, obviously the last five years have been dominated by a lot of regulatory change. Um, and, you know, a lot of the banks are now moving into the implementation phase. So how has regulatory reform changed the way quants think and carry out research? Well, in, in, in the first, uh, I would say the first thing is it changes the very, the very objects the quants works on. For example, we can look at the move from value at risk to expected shortfall, which was, you know, uh, endorsed by the, the Basel committee, the committee, well, not in the backtesting, but in, uh, initially, but at least in the, in the risk measurement uh, part. Uh, and then if you are a quant and you have always worked with value at risk, all of a sudden clearly now you need to work with expected shortfall. So the regulation can change the very uh, objects uh, that you use in your quantitative job, but also it can change, uh, now, now regulation is uh, you know, uh, much more uh, important than it used to be uh, before the beginning of the 2007-2008 crisis. After that, the, some of the regulation regulatory parameters started impacting directly the performance of traders, you know. In the old days, this was a little bit disconnected, but uh, uh, now uh, it, 
the amount of capital you take, you need to start doing a trade, the way you use collateral, you know, the, the, your impact on the treasury funding policy as a trader, all these uh, uh, facts can change uh, your performance, uh, your measured performance, your, even your bonus to some extent. So, and this has been driven by regulation, you know, the need to collateralize the new, uh, more, um, you know, uh, important capital limits and so on. I think this, this is reflected in a number of uh, aspects of the quant job from the very uh, objects the quants works with to the performance for the traders the, uh, the quants work with as well. And the job has become, the regulation has, has caused the job to become much more eclectic. In the, as I, I said this many times, but in the old days, you, you, the quant could live in a kind of pocket universe where he knew uh, mathematics very well, a little bit of finance, uh, he knew the payoff of the exotics uh, in the asset class where he was working. He would work only under the Martingale measure, mostly under pricing measure, recalibrate the models very often, he wouldn't really run much of an historical analysis or look at the risk premium that much. The, the, I'm talking about, you know, front office pricing edging quants. Uh, and that would be it. But today, because of all this regulatory pressure, the way collateral and margining impact the trade, the capital limits, that they impact the, 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 the performance of the trade, all the valuation adjustments that build on the credit uh, uh, impact, the funding cost, the relationship with the treasury, the relationship with external client, all these effects uh, uh, force the quant to know regulation, to know the treasury policy of her bank, to know uh, a number of uh, areas that uh, previously uh, she was quite free to, to neglect. And so the current quants need not only uh, know the maths well, they also need to know uh, finance, economics, the organization of a bank, uh, the role of the regulators, all these aspects have become important and they cannot be neglected anymore. Uh, so you mentioned, um, you know, quants are now armed with, you know, much better computing power. So keeping that in mind, uh, what are some areas in finance that are still in need of better quantitative solutions? Uh, yeah, th that's another very good question. Um, and it's a good question for a number of reasons. I would say, you know, one point I would like to make is that there are a lot of traditional quantitative finance uh, problems that have not really been solved. The problem with the industry is, and it's physiological, there's not much you can do there, but you know, the, the industry follows the market trends clearly. So if you are working on building uh, a good modeling uh, framework for a specific problem, but that, that kind of trading or asset class becomes unfashionable or illiquid, or not many players are interested in it anymore, then you drop it and you move it to the next, uh, I don't know, fashionable or you know, important area. And uh, just to make an example, for, for example, collateralized debt obligations, CDO, the synthetics, we have been looking for years for a model that could dynamically reproduce the, the dependent structure uh, among uh, uh, the different names in a portfolio. I have a paper in Risk Magazine exactly on that, the GPL model that was you know, uh, published in 2006, I think, or maybe 2000, early 2007 before the crisis. But actually, uh, this is an unfinished problem. It, hasn't not, it has not been solved. 
the few trades that are still done there, are, they still use base correlation, which is a completely unsatisfactory model in, in, model in so many ways, not even a model uh, to some extent. Uh, and But this problem has not been solved. And it's not just that. Think about valuation adjustment. We all now talk about capital valuation adjustment, KVA. But there's a lot of problems on CVA, the first valuation adjustment, the credit valuation adjustment, that have not been solved. Modeling properly wrong way risk, finding the, the correct proxies to populate you know, the, the valuation uh, routines, edging, you know, CVA edging is very difficult and uh, a very precise edging is essentially uh, impossible with all the risk factors. So I would say that uh, uh, there's the old problems that are still uh, very much there and could benefit uh, uh, from better quantitative solutions, but in terms of the most uh, recent problems, I think, uh, you know, I would go back to the, the issues I mentioned in the beginning. So again, risk management, for example, could benefit enormously from uh, optimization, moving from risk measurement to real risk management. And uh, the areas I mentioned earlier, so I won't repeat them, but also I would say systemic risk uh, is another aspect that could you know, uh, benefit from uh, an increased uh, quantitative effort. Uh, we have uh, these network models that are, you know, very, very respectable and uh, interesting way to look at the problem. But I think we need to, to keep working on this and, and develop uh, more comprehensive methodology, more interdisciplinary as well, probably, to understand systemic risk uh, and, and especially big problems like the impact of central clearing. You know, what is going to be the impact of central clearing in 10 years? And it's very hard to tell. There's a few papers that try to understand the impact of central clearing in limited contexts, for example, CDS trading. But the general study is, is beyond the, the uh, you know, techniques we have now, probably. And all similarly, you may want to, to look at what could be the impact of distributed clearing. So if we manage a way to to look at that, and I don't want to say blockchain because, you know, every time you say blockchain, then, yeah. But uh, if you found a way anyway to start implementing a distributed clearing uh, process, what would be the consequences of this and the impact? And similarly, you know, if you have a big portfolio you want to trade, but some of the mm, properties of the portfolios are a little bit confidential and you are considering doing a going through a central clearing house where things would go kind of, you know, uh, public. Or you, you might wish to consider going through a standard CSA and remain uh, over the counter. What is the best? What is the cost of this? How is this going to impact your, your trade? If you want to assess the cost of margining properly, the, the mathematics is quite interesting. And I think you have still some, some problems there. So there's still a lot of work to, to do. Um, that's, uh, I think, my, my view, but it has again, again become more eclectic. It's much more complicated than the, the pocket universe we had uh, for the quants a few, uh, a few years back. So on the other end of the spectrum, um, what are some of the quantitative finance topics that aren't researched anymore or where the interest is sort of declining? I would say that, if I may have mentioned this already, my, my view is that the most important case is probably the exotics, exotic derivatives. 
the way this used to work, uh, you know this uh, very well, of course, is, you know, you would have uh, banks designing uh, more and more exotic derivatives on, on different asset classes that in the beginning would be difficult to be valued by the general market. So there was a transition period where there were some degrees of freedom in the valuation and in the edging of these products. Then once these products became more popular and more liquid, the market would kind of absorb them. And then you would move on to creating even more complex products and to restart a little bit the, the process. And sometimes these products were designed to be cheaper than other derivatives uh, in a way that, for example, you know, a barrier feature on an option can decrease the, the, the cost of the option because the option is knocked out in some scenarios, whereas where without, the, without the barrier it wouldn't be. And so, you know, sometimes this was done to offer cheaper uh, contracts uh, like ratchet caps and floors, I'm, I'm mentioning a few here. And sometimes it was uh, uh, designed to offer more protection. But uh, all these exotics have gone, essentially, almost all of them. And uh, uh, this has been, I think, the main change uh, on the sell side. There's no rush to create exotic products. We have moved from, uh, you know, uh, complex payoffs in a simple system to simple payoffs in a complex system. Because now the derivatives are basic. You still have swaps, basic options, futures, forward contracts. You have basic derivatives. You no longer have exotics. But the way you value and you manage them is much more complicated because of all this regulatory you know, surrounding environment that I mentioned earlier. So the, the environment, this pocket universe is, is gone. Now you have a, a much more realistic universe where the products live. The products are simpler, but the universe is much more complex. And the mathematics you need in this more complex universe is even more complex than the one we used in the, in the pocket universe, so to speak. So I think it, uh, it's uh, interesting actually to be a quant now, but the, the exotics themselves as, as a products that they mostly disappeared. So that's the main change I have seen in, in my type of activity, really, aside from XVA clearly, but those are not real exotic options. They're kind of embedded in standard trades. Yeah. I would like to ask you about the relationship between academia and uh, the industry. So it, it is at times perceived that academic research is somewhat detached from the industry and focusing on subjects that are not immediately relevant. Uh, what do you think um, could be done to help academic research align to industry needs? Yes, I'm fortunate enough to be in a university, in Imperial College London, that is quite, uh, you know, um, keen on applications and on impact on society. So I'm going to talk about this in general. Not, I'm not talking about Imperial. I'm, I'm, I think Imperial is doing a good job, really. But in general, you know, there is a gap, definitely, between uh, academic research and the industry. Part of this gap is physiological because the purpose of academic research and the purpose of industry research is, is rather different. The industry, as I said earlier, is to solve some problems in, in a realistic time frame for operational needs and so on. You can't go on researching a topic five years, you know, uh, very rarely you can, especially on the trading floor. You need a solution next week, you have to patch together whatever you have got to 
uh, you can you have to do the best you can but then you have to go with a solution now uh, academics have a little bit more freedom but then then perhaps sometimes by the time they have reached the satisfactory solution to a problem the problem is no longer of interest because maybe the asset class is shut down or the the bank moved to completely different uh, um, areas it's true that uh, you know the UK government is quite keen on having, uh, uh, however, in general, not just for finance, but in general, the research have impact on society. And both in the previous research excellence framework uh, in 2014 and in the upcoming uh, one in 2020-21, they are uh, imposing, uh, uh, they are requesting impact on society. So you need to prove that your research. If you can prove this, you get benefits in terms of funding and, and so on. You, you have to try to prove that your research has impacted society in the sense that the industry is using it, is using your results, or maybe the policymakers are using your results, the regulator are using your results. If you can prove it, uh, this is proof of impact. Uh, and this is uh, very much valued by the UK government. They give uh, a, a, an important weight to this part uh, of the of the research. So the way an academic is assessed, typically there is a part clearly based on the quality of the scholarly research, which is uh, the papers, the journals and so on. But then there is a part uh, that looks at the impact on society. And if you can prove you have that kind of impact, uh, you get better uh, funding options and a better evaluation in general. So the government has been sensitive to this and the UK university system is also sensitive. Uh, to this, I would say, but in general, there is uh, really a gap that is partly physiological and partly comes from the fact that, you know, an academic needs really a long time to develop good mathematical framework. Uh, it's not something you do overnight. It takes years. And once you have it, you are tempted to use it for anything. So occasionally you have also in academia the fact that uh, rather than having uh, problems looking for solutions, uh, you have solutions looking for problems, basically, you know. And this, uh, again, is not a case of what I'm seeing where I work, but uh, in part of the academic literature in, in mathematical finance and quantitative finance, I have seen this happening, I have to say, yes. That is very interesting. Thank you. Um, I would like to go back to your column now. Um, so the first one is coming up and be published in only a few days. And um, could you tell us a little more about uh, the subjects you will be uh, focusing on and discussing in, uh, in the columns uh, over the next four or five months that you will be with us as a columnist? Uh, yes. Uh, in, in fact, uh, I think it relates a little bit uh, uh, to the conversa conversation we just had. The, the first uh, um, uh, column I will write uh, is uh, about uh, uh, the need to move beyond, uh, you know, classic risk neutral valuation. Again, this pocket universe we mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, but also to abandon, uh, you know, the idea that uh, you can work uh, uh, essentially only under the pricing measure and uh, look at other valuation methods that involve uh, utility, indifference, uh, you know, no good deal bounds. There's a variety of uh, mean variance hedging, quantile hedging. There's a variety of uh, techniques that uh, go beyond the uh, the self-contained traditional risk neutral valuation that uh, 
the, the practitioners, uh, especially in trading floors, have rarely used. So this is the first column. The second one I would like to talk about, and I don't know if we'll do it exactly in this order, but another topic I've been looking at is uh, um, whether the current risk measures proposed by the Basel framework, uh, um, mostly expected shortfall and historically value at risk, whether they are effective in constraining traders who are, who are re, uh, risk, looking for excessive risk, sorry, excessive risk-taking uh, traders. In this sense, uh, uh, we found that actually if you model these excessive tail risk-seeking traders with S-shaped utility, uh, which is related to the uh, Nobel awarded work of Kahneman and Tversky, and prospect theory, if you model their lim limited liability traders uh, with S-shaped utility, it turns out that these risk measures do nothing at all to limit the traders. If the traders try to design a payoff that maximizes this limited liability utility or S-shaped utility, the optimum they can achieve with or without an expected shortfall constraint or a value at risk constraint for that matter is the same. So the constraint does nothing to limit the trader. The other topics I would like to address uh, is a topic I worked on as an academic for many years and as a practitioner as well. So the valuation adjustments, the way they're really connected and not always uh, it's possible to disentangle them in additive adjustments as is done by the industry due to non-linear effects. I would like to talk then about XVA, the open problems and and whether this will be still an issue or not, given you know the emphasis on central clearing and, and collateralization, many of the XVAs could become negligible, except for pathological cases. But I think the problem will be still there, assessing the cost of margining imposed by the regulatory framework versus the actual one you, you experience with a proper model and so on. I would like to, to talk about that in the column. And finally, uh, there is a column I would like to write. It's, this is a bit far, far away at the moment, but I started getting myself into systemic risk a little bit and reading the literature. And there is a column I would like to write on that, on the current approaches that are used and, you know, and what perhaps we could do uh, to improve the, the overall uh, techniques that we use for that. Well, that is excellent. Well, systemic risk, I believe there are more than 20 different approaches proposed by now like as uh, systemic risk measures. Uh, obviously, none of them have been uh, adopted uh, officially by anyone, and uh, um, there's a lot to uh, debate over, over that subject. Well, a lot to look forward to, so we, we truly look forward to, um, to publish your, your columns. Uh, Damiano, thank you very much for talking to us today yeah, thank and you. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you very much.